And tonight we're going to be looking at how to study narrative. Last week we looked at how to study parables. And so we are really in the section of this, uh, of this lesson, these lessons I should say, um, where we, we kind of went macro, we looked at inductive Bible study or basic hermeneutics as a whole, and now we're going into individual uh, specialties, if you will, or unique aspects of, of Scripture, and we're, we're looking at, uh, at them. So we're going to be doing that for the next several weeks. Um, I think all of them are very interesting, uh, but that's probably something that a preacher would say about anything related to the Bible. I think that you will find them interesting as, as well. So we have how to study narrative uh, tonight. Next week, I think, is uh, prophecy, yes? How to study prophecy. And um, then after how to study prophecy, uh, how to study Proverbs. And um, then there's, I think there's one more, and we actually going to round out our time together with actually looking at some specific passages and applying everything, looking at some passages of Scripture that, uh, that um, people have misinterpreted, I've misinterpreted prior to learning uh, some of these uh, basic uh, hermeneutical techniques, and so we'll enjoy that uh, together. So we're going to be looking at um, the very first page there. At the bottom it says page 2. Uh, because uh, in, in the handout, which you don't have a copy of, there is a, um, a teacher's lesson that goes along uh, with this, related to your homework last week and those types of, of things. So uh, we don't go over that. So that's why it says page two there. But we are on lesson six, how to study narrative. And this study is going to be devoted in, uh, to studying really the, the largest portion of your, of your Bibles. And it's also a, a part of your Bible that, that's easily misinterpreted or moralized uh, or taken out of context. Uh, and, and quite frankly, as I mentioned last week, there has been a lot of false doctrine that has been perpetuated from narrative passages that, uh, that were used... Uh, whenever they're, they weren't prescriptive at all, me, meaning it's not something that God prescribed for us to do or the church to do or commanded us to do. They're just a story of what happened, how it happened. It, it's accurate. Um, all the Bible is. It, it's, it's, it's helpful. It's profitable. Narrative portions are profitable uh, for all those things that Second Timothy tells us, but, but you're just not to, to take everything in narrative and think it's repeatable. Or think that it's, it's something that you're commanded um, to do. And I'll give you some examples of that t- tonight. Large sections of Scripture uh, are story or, or narrative. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Job, the Gospels, and Acts. We talked about that in the New Testament this morning. The first epistle is Romans. And in the epistle of Romans, it goes over doctrine, but then it gives us commands. and tells us specifically to do something, and that... That, that's, that starts in chapter 12, um, 13, and, and, and 14. And so in our first lesson, we learned that narrative books, or uh, books of the Bible which tell a historical event, are usually written in chronological order. Um, God chooses specific uh, events in, in history to relay theological truths in, uh, in uh, 
in the present. They're not history books, but theology books that communicate theology through history. Now, let me clarify what, what we mean by that. They're not history books. But that doesn't mean that they're not historically accurate. Everything in the Bible is historically accurate. It's just the purpose of that writing was not a history book, but, but to, to teach us about God uh, and, and theology. Remember, uh, the Bible has one main character, and the main character in the Bible is God. And naturally, because of our fallen nature, we immediately go to ourselves, right? You go to a passage, you read it, and you think, what does this mean to me? How does this apply to me? What does this say about me? But the Bible is His revelation. So it's God revealing Himself to, to His creation, to mankind. Why does God have to do that? Well, we're going to find that out in Romans 1, and we kind of hinted at it this morning. We are truth suppressors by our fallen nature. Uh, what is known about God, the fact that He's a creator, there's something bigger than us, there's someone greater than us, uh, the fact that, that there's a that there's a deity, a being out there, all of that where the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, we suppress that truth. And we, we do that in our unrighteousness. And we remake God in our own image. Um, so we, we, we make up things about God. We make God like, like man. So when you read Romans chapter 1, don't just think of, you know, of worshiping little statues, although people do that. We, we worship false gods all the time in, in America. And, and you may even find as we go through the book of Romans, there are some aspects about God that you believe that, that are unbiblical. It's just sown in us. And that's the reason you sit under the Word and you, you submit to the Word because it, it corrects our thinking. Because naturally, we come up with ideas about God and, and that's where it comes from. We respond to, to truth and we suppress it whether that truth comes through, uh, that, that revelation comes through natural revelation or specific revelation. Romans also tells us that God, the heavens declare the glory of God, the, 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 the universe proclaims to us there's a God, and Romans tells us that, that, that what we do as fallen creatures is, is perverted and it's only enough to condemn us. So there, there's no one without an excuse. So the pygmy in Africa that says, you never sent me a missionary, Timberlake Baptist Church, therefore I don't deserve to go to hell, that, that's not going to work whenever they stand before God. Because the truth, there was a, an image of God there, an echo of God, in, uh, a witness of God, and they, they, they rejected it. So creation is only enough to condemn sinful mankind because we're truth suppressors by nature. And yet God, being merciful and gracious... He gave us special revelation or specific revelation, which is just the Bible. God has communicated to us. He's revealed Himself to us, the specifics about Himself. So while creation tells us there is a God and, and we know about His power and His creative genius and, and His glory, it's the Bible that tells us who that God is, how we can be right with Him, uh, how to approach Him, who we are, uh, how He... He makes us right with, with, with Him. So that's the importance of the Bible. So from Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of God. He's the main character. He's revealing Himself. And, and so all of these narrative stories that we have in the Bible, 
the people that are in those stories are there for one purpose and one purpose only, or one main purpose, and that's to teach us things about God. You, th- you might think of them like stage players. They're, they're there. Abraham, the story of Abraham is in the Bible to teach us something about God. And yeah, you can learn something about man as part of that, because we're all the same, whether we lived you know, thousands of years ago or, or, or today. But the story about Abraham is there to teach us about God. The, the story of Israel is there to teach us about God. And, 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 and there's one primary storyline. While God's the main character, there's one primary storyline through the Bible, and it's, it's redemption. That's, that's the, the Bible begins with, with who God is. He's the creator. The fall is, is immediate. And then the consequences of the fall, and God makes a, an echo of a promise in Genesis 3. He won't leave mankind there. And the rest of the Bible is, is how God uh, saves us and redeems us and, and how He will restore what, what we have, what we've messed up. And so they're not history books, but, but they're, they're, they're stories about history, but that history has a theological purpose. It's to teach us about God. So God is able to, to leave things out in that history. Um, because that may not serve his purpose of telling us something about him. Meaning when you read something in the Bible and you're walking along chronologically of what happened to Israel, not everything that happened to Israel is recorded in First Chronicles or Second Chronicles or First Kings and Second Kings. It's, it, those books have a, have a purpose. So God chose, a, chose specific events in history to relay theological truths to those in the present. In studying narrative requires a specialized approach. And so in the study, we'll, we'll talk about how we can discover sound doctrine and God's will for your life through the narrative portions of, of Scripture. So, so look at number one here. How do you do it? How, how do you study narrative? Well, there are many narrative portions in the, in the Bible. And it's often difficult to teach narrative accurately, faithfully, because of the size of the individual sections. Um, if you focus on one or two verses in Romans, you probably aren't going to mess things up because it's an epistle. And there's compact truth in those one or two verses. You still have to show the near context and the far context, how it relates. The context still matters. But you take one or two verses out of the book of Deuteronomy and preach a sermon on one or two verses... Uh, you can get in trouble really, really fast because the thrust of the story can be lost when you, when you just pull that out of the, uh, of the hole. On the flip side, if you try to teach the entire story, then one of the problems is that you use so much material, it's, it's hard finding the, the practical implication that the, you know, the, the text gives. Uh, for instance... Look at A here, Genesis 37 through 50. Now, the book of Genesis, we all love the book of Genesis. and We already learned, in general, what the theme is in, in Genesis. There's two, Genesis 1 through 11 is, is all about what? Remember? Beginnings, that's right. Genesis 12 through the end of Genesis is all about... God's sovereignty, how he's preserving the line of Abraham, uh, preserving Israel through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
and you have the story of Joseph. Now, Genesis 37 through 50 is the story of Joseph. Now, take that in for a second. Genesis 37 through 50 is all the story of Joseph from beginning to end. And all of those chapters deal, are they're a single unit. And they all focus on God's sovereign dealings to preserve Israel through, through Joseph. You know the story of Joseph, the coat of many colors and the dream and how he's sold into slavery and how he ends up in Egypt and how he's, he's Potiphar's wife in prison and how, how he excels in all of those things. And there's a famine in the land and so his brothers uh, have to come down to Egypt and how in the end God ends up bringing Jacob and the rest of the, the, the brothers to Egypt out of the promised land to preserve them. And they, they go into Egypt... 70 people or so, and they stay there in an incubator. <laughs> and God prepares the way through Joseph and through all of those things. And you know the, 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 the passage that, that's very familiar. What, what you meant for evil, God worked for good. So through all of that, God sends Joseph to Egypt to prepare the way for Jacob and the sons. And they go in 70... And through the favor of Pharaoh, the favor that God gives Joseph, now he, related to Pharaoh, they leave one to two million. And they go back to the promised land. And so then the story after Genesis jumps to Moses, who will be the deliverer. So there's, and you have uh, Exodus saying there's a new Pharaoh in town. And he doesn't know uh, the, the, the Jews before and, and Joseph and and so now you're on to a new part of the story where there's a, there's a large gap left out when they go in and when Moses shows up. And during that period of time, they grow, they grow, they grow, they, they, they multiply. And so you find them in Exodus as, as slaves. But, but the story of Joseph is, is chapter 37 through, uh, through 50. And if you only uh, want to teach a few verses, you're going to miss the purpose or the thrust of the whole story. If you decide to teach the whole story, then you're plagued with a mountain of material. And you're going to miss many of the practical lessons in the, in the narrative. Um, or, studying the book of Job. We just had this illustrated for us by, by Tim a few Sundays ago. If you've ever read the book of Job, you, you realize the book is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the book has one central message, and each part of the story contributes to that central message. So how do you teach the smaller sections without missing the intended meaning of the whole? How do you teach the whole book and not confuse people too much with all the material that's, the, that, that's there? As I said, Tim illustrated that very well for us. If you didn't listen to that message, I encourage you to, to go get it. So there are two of the common problems. Um... If you take too small, you're going to miss the point of the story. If you try to grab the whole story and teach it, then, then you can get lost. There's too much information to communicate and to, you know, and to apply it. Well, here's another one. Here's another problem that you can run into with, with narrative. This is not in your notes. You can also get things very, very wrong by using narrative prescriptively. 
And I want to show you a couple of those common, uh, common passages where people do that. They take something that's narrative and they make it a command or something repeatable. So, since I'm from West Virginia, um, open to Mark 16. You'll know what I mean here in a minute. Mark 16. There's a 16 and, and 17. How do they end up handling snakes in West Virginia? Or Tennessee, if Pastor Alley was here. I know he's not. Well, there's a text here. So you have Mark 16, verses 16 and, and 17. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and they will drink any deadly poison, and it will not hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. You actually have churches who take that passage and as part of their, of their worship service, there is a box with literal serpents, and they take them out. And they say, right here it is, commanded that, that you do that. There are others that actually drink strychnine and poison, and they use this passage as a proof text for doing that. Well, first of all, does that, is that what this passage tells us to do? Is this repeatable? And some of you who know textual criticism realize that this passage is not even in some of the earliest manuscripts that, that we have. And so that's the first thing that you have to, to, to deal with. Um, the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, those verses weren't, weren't in it. But let's say it is. There's nowhere in this passage that commands us to do this. It just tells us that that's what's going to happen. And it, it, it doesn't even tell us to pick up the snakes. It, it tells us that there's the promise of protection if, if we would. There's an example of a narrative passage where somebody's taken it and, and have commanded it. Uh, turn back to Matthew 10, verse 5. Here's, a, here's another one of those passages that, that's used. A narrative passage where people have gotten into big trouble. And unfortunately, people have been severely misled. Matthew 10. Look at verse 1. Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the, the names of the twelve, are they're, they're listed there. Uh, look at verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, 
And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that that city. Well, there's a passage that faith healers use. Right here it is. It's commanded that we're to do this. But there's no command in here directed to us. This is a narrative passage telling the story of how Jesus is sending out the the 12 disciples to to replicate his message of, uh, of the kingdom. And if you would take this, if this was prescriptive, which it's not, the direction then of the faith healers would be to heal only Jews. You wouldn't be allowed to heal Gentiles or Samaritans, if there is any Samaritans running around in, in Benny Hinn land, I'm not sure. Now there's an example. Uh, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 5. The book of Acts is, is fraught with misuse, and you could probably go to a number of different places. Remember, the book of Acts is the, the story of how the, Jesus is building his church through the apostles. Acts 5:12. You know the book of Acts, Pentecost. Jesus gave the great commission, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel, Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, the uttermost parts of the the earth. And then if you follow along the book of Acts, that's exactly what happens. The apostles go out and they preach the gospel in all of those places. And the book of Acts shows us how that happens. It starts in Jerusalem. They're thrown out of, of uh, Jerusalem and then they go to Samaria, Judea. And then the apostle Paul comes along, who's, a God, who's the apostles of the Gentiles. He goes on the first, second, third missionary journey. In the book of Acts, Paul's not done. He doesn't die, meaning the, the mission goes on. So it's just telling the story about how Jesus is planting his church and how the apostles are laying the foundation of the, uh, of the church. And as part of that story, in, in verse 12, um, yeah, chapter 5, verse 12, at the, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But no one, uh, but none of them, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in, in high esteem and all the more believers in the Lord, all the, the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such extent that even, they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow may fall on one of them. And also the, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick and afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Is this repeatable? Is there any command that's here? And the answer is no, it's not repeatable. There's no command here whatsoever. In fact, it says the apostles were doing these things. These are signs 
to authenticate that these were the, the men that, that were bring, was bringing the message of the, of the Messiah. The people will take that passage and they'll, buy, they'll build entire denominations on it and great ministries on it. Um, look over at Acts 10. Here's one about speaking in tongues, Acts 10. Verse 44, this is the story about Peter being summoned to Caesarea, to Cornelius' house. And you know he has the vision that we're all very thankful for that reminds us we can eat bacon. Verse 44, though, Peter is preaching to Cornelius' household And it says, while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a a few days. So here is the story that's very important in the book of Acts. How does the book of Acts start? With Pentecost, right? The coming of languages where... Some believer or some some Jews that were unbelievers from Rome show up, and Peter preaches the message of Christ to them. Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, he is both Lord and Christ. And then everybody that's there hears the gospel in their own language. There, there's the gift of languages that was given. Those are all Jews. And in the Old Testament. The gift of languages, or tongues, was a sign that the Messiah had come. And it was also a sign of judgment, according to 1 Corinthians 14, those who rejected it. Well, now, there's that sign replicated here because the Gentiles are coming to faith. And notice what it says. Verse 34 When Peter starts preaching, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what what is right is welcome to him. This is all going to be about the Gentiles coming to faith. Well, how is God going to confirm to Jews that the Gentiles are actually enveloped into the new covenant? Well, the sign of languages, the same sign that they receive whenever the Messiah would come. And notice verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. So there's a conversion that's happened. And notice verse 45. Notice the focus. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter. Now, where did Peter come from? Jerusalem. So there were witnesses, and these are circumcised witnesses. 
that have come with Peter from Jerusalem and they have witnessed this sign and they're going to go back and confirm that God has indeed included the Gentiles in the, the new covenant. And so that's why Peter says in verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking, exalting God, and Peter said, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized, to have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? This is all about the, the Gentiles. Um, there's no command here. The people will take this passage, and they'll say, this is what's supposed to happen every time somebody comes to faith. You're supposed to have the gift of languages, and it won't even be languages in context here, hearing in their own language, people praising God, it'll be an ecstatic babble and an experience. Um, you can go to 1 Corinthians 14 and find out how God has regulated that sign gift, which is no longer uh, in practice. Just as a few examples, you could probably find a number of others. Does anybody know, just off the top of your head, can you think of, a, of, a, of an example of somebody taking a, a denomination or a false teaching, taking a narrative passage and uh, making that a doctrine. It's one that comes to my mind. Okay. These passages like this. The one I was thinking of was the Church of Christ. They'll take that passage in Mark. Um, it says, He who believed and is baptized shall be saved. And so they'll take that passage. Or they'll take the passage in, in Acts chapter 2. They'll take a narrative passage and, and they'll, they'll use that as a basis for you, you can't go to heaven unless you actually are baptized by, by water in obedience uh, to Christ, adding to justification, which according to Scripture is by faith alone. You think of any others? Any others? Okay, um, look at some possible options here. Go back to your handout. Some possible options in teaching narrative. So, so what do you do? If I can't pull a couple verses out and there's too much to cover sometimes, what, what do I do with narrative? I mean, if I'm going to do my daily devotions and my Bible reading, when I come to Joseph, do I have to read chapters 37 through 50 before I go to work in the morning? Well, it would be helpful if you could, but understand that you can't. Just realize that the story is from chapter 37 through 50. So what do you do? Well, you, you, you can teach a small section out of a, out of a large narrative, a larger narrative. So if you do decide to teach a small section, let's say two or three verses, which I think is pretty hard to do, but let, let's say you, you want to do that for some reason, there's a certain number of things that you have to remember. Number one, your purpose should be to teach what God intended to teach and what the author meant to teach to the original, uh, the original audience by what they wrote. Now, that's a loaded sentence there. Notice the tense. Your purpose should be to teach what God intended, past tense, to teach. Not what you intend to teach, but what God intended to teach from that narrative, meaning there's a message that God intended to teach. And that message is what the 
author meant to teach to the original audience whenever they, they wrote. So now we're back to basic hermeneutics. What did Moses intend to communicate to the readers of the book of, uh, of Genesis? You're trying to teach your specific section in light of that grand theme. Um, go to Genesis chapter 9. Let's, let, let's see how you would do this. Genesis chapter 9. All right? What part of Genesis are we in if we go to Genesis chapter 9? Is this before Abraham? Yep. So we're in the beginnings. You know Genesis well, which is, I do too, which is why we, we go there. It's kind of fresh in the mind, so it's easy to illustrate. Genesis 1 through 3, creation, the fall, casting out of the garden. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, and you, you go through the progression. Genesis 11, you come to the end, Tower of Babel, and then you have this genealogy, which gets us close to God is going to to bring Abram through, through this genealogy, and it ends with him. And now you, you're introduced to Abraham, Genesis 12, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, sons of Jacob, Joseph, and, and, and the story ends. So you're, here you are with Noah. So you all know the story of Noah and the, and the flood. But look at Genesis 9, verse 20. How would you teach Genesis 9, verse 20? It says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away they're, they're, they're backwards so they did not see their father's nakedness and when Noah awoke from his wine he knew what his youngest son had done to him and so he said cursed be Cana the servant of servants he shall be to his brothers he also said blessed, uh, blessed be the Lord the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 300 years and 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he dies, and he died. So there you have the ending of that, of that narrative. So we obviously know there's a lot that comes before that. Why God brought about the flood how God prepared Noah and his family and the world for the flood, how the flood came, how he gathered, built the ark, he gathered them. Um, so how would you teach that, 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 that section? So you probably wouldn't want to take Genesis 9.20 and use that to preach a sermon about getting drunk. Um, Although, getting drunk is really bad. In fact, it's sinful to do that, according to Scripture. I would just go to the New Testament or some other places and preach about that. But let's say you wanted to address this specific passage. How would, how, how would you do that? Um, 
what is the story of Noah all about in, in the big picture? Okay. Yeah. That's exactly right. You just nailed the, the, the second part, which is where I, I wanted you to go. We know the story of the flood. We know why there was an ark. God showed grace to, to Noah. Look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and see if this sounds familiar. Remember, sinful is a mankind, so God has to destroy the whole world through a, a global flood. He saves Noah and his family, all by grace, puts them in the ark. Is, does that solve the problem? Genesis 9.1 And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? What's it sound familiar from? The garden. This is a, another garden passage. This is God starting over, if you will. I'm going to start over with Noah and his sons, the ones that, and all of the wicked people of all of the earth are destroyed, right? Because Noah is a righteous man, and so the problem is solved, right? No, that's, that's the point of the story of Noah getting drunk and his sons. The problem's not solved. Noah is not the answer, and God has to rescue his covenant again. And the point of this story is, is God starting over here, he says, fear of you and terror will be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that, that creeps, every moving thing that is alive. This is all a, a, a garden narrative. Now it's a, a, new, a remade earth, if you will, remade by God's judgment. And then God, in verse 8, then God spoke to Noah and his sons, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants and every living creature. This this is him starting over. And so then in verse 20, the, the section you want to teach, then Noah began farming and planting a vineyard. Does that sound familiar? What did Adam do? Tended the garden. Noah's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. Is he going to be any better than Adam? That's the, that's the tension in the story. Is this the seed? Is this the one who will fix the problem? Is this the promised one that, that, that has come? Well, you only take one verse to find out that the answer is negatory. Verse 21, And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Now, there's all kinds of crazy interpretations of what all this means. I think it means just exactly what he said. He was naked in his tent. And it is not a righteous thing to look upon the nakedness of somebody else that's, that's not your spouse. And so it doesn't mean all of these other sexual perversions that you will hear people come up with. And in my opinion, the other brothers honored their father. Obviously, there was something that, that Ham thought that was, that was sinful. Shem and Japheth took the, took the garden, a garment. And listen to what happens in verse 24. Noah awoke from his wine... And he knew what his youngest son had done. So now he pronounces what? A curse. Sound familiar? Just like 
God was the one that cursed. Now Noah is the one that pronounces the, the curse. Cursed be Canaan, the son of Ham, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. But he also said, just like God pronounced a curse and provided hope and blessing, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and watch this, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let him find safety and, and provision in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And then you have the descendants of Noah that follows afterwards. Look, if you would, at Genesis 11, verse 10. So this is after the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, verse 10. My study Bible says the descendants of Shem. Now why, out of all of those sons... Would the book of Genesis, would Moses just record the descendants of Shem? Wouldn't there be three sons? And you say, well, one of them was wicked, so we don't include him. We don't include Ham, Canaan. Well, Japheth didn't do anything wrong. He did the same thing that, that, that Shem did. So why do you have this, this descendants of, of, of Shem here? Well, if you start going down through that list... Look at how the, the, the genealogy, uh, the descendants of Shem, ends. Look at verse 31 of chapter 11. Or, I'm sorry, verse 26. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah, and then he goes through it. Verse 31, Abram his son and Lot. Now you understand why the genealogy is there. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country. And then now we've moved into how God will preserve his line so in that story of Genesis, if you would go to Genesis 9, verse 20, and preach a sermon on don't get drunk, because if you do, you're going to get naked. You might, and you're going to sin greatly against the Lord and ruin your life, but you're going to really miss the whole reason that God put that in the Bible, aren't you? Um, the point is that Noah is not the answer. His sons are not the answer. But God will bring about His promise. And it will be through, not the curse, but His gracious blessing, which falls on Shem. And from Shem comes Abraham, Abram, and then the promise is made um, to him. All right? Look back at your, your possible options in the teaching, teaching the narrative. So make sure if you teach... Teach what God intended. Number two, this one is very often done. Number two, violated. 
you must be careful not to read New Testament truths into Old Testament texts. Putting the New Testament into the Old is eisegesis, meaning reading into the text. And the goal of the Bible should be exegesis, reading out of the text. It's important when you're studying narrative, remember the hermeneutical principle of progressive revelation, which simply means that God reveals His truth progressively. And we have to interpret each passage in light of where you're at in that progression. Moses didn't know the same thing that Paul knew. So the, what did the audience and the writer know whenever it was, was written? Not what do we know today. And after you examine and interpret the text in its historical context, then you consider how other texts might help you understand the text in its context. Cross-reference. Number three, always show how your section, if, again, you're preaching a small portion of narrative, not the whole thing, Always show how your small portion fits into the big picture that God intended to reveal. When, when teaching a small section of a larger narrative, it's necessary to show how that small section is a building block in the whole. This usually, usually can be done in a few sentences. So again, you can't teach the entire story of Joseph. Well, I shouldn't say it. You can. You can teach the entire story of Joseph. But... But you're also able to teach a portion. You can teach the story of Potiphar when Joseph flees or or when Joseph is in prison. Just as you do that, connect it to to the big picture. And you can do that in a few few sentences. You don't have to spend all your time talking about how it's developed. Just, Just know it and know where yours fits in as the building block, the link in the chain, and and share that. Number four. If you're going to use a small piece of narrative as an illustration or example, make sure you explain that you're using it as an illustration or, or an example. Before we go there, is there any comments or questions or, or, or things uh, about what, what we've learned so far? Any specific things? Yes, Rick. I think that the point there is that the uh, you know, sin perpetuates, and so it fall, the curse falls on all mankind, just like uh, Adam and Eve were cursed, and we're cursed be, because of it. I think that's the, that's the echo there. Um, you know, it's uh, Deuteronomy, sins of the fathers are visited uh, up to the third and, and, and fourth generation, so... You're not held accountable for the specific sin of your or your forefathers. That, that's something that's that's uh, very relevant to today. Um, we can all agree that chattel slavery—not slavery like it's talked about in the Bible—but chattel slavery, where you go to a land and you you steal somebody and you you force force them into labor rather than somebody selling themselves as an indentured servant or or, or some other you know biblical example. We can say chattel slavery is evil, it's, it's sinful, it's condemned in, in the Bible. And you can say that that happened in, in, in our history. But you can't hold me accountable for what my great-great-great-great-grandfather did in the sense that I'm not accountable for his specific sins. Um, but I may bear some of the consequences for the sins of uh, the sin patterns of my father. Uh, I think the example of 
Abraham was a liar. Um, Isaac was a liar. The sons of uh, Jacob was a liar. His sons were liars. And the one who broke the chain, if you will, was Joseph. He was the one who wasn't you know, a liar. Well, it just happens to be the, you know, the, the fourth generation. So, right. Yes? Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of. So, like with the book of Daniel, um, you're still going to interpret that progressively, but you are going to look to the New Testament and see the prophecy that's there, which, which further informs us. But you wouldn't say that Daniel understood what, say, John the Revelator understood. So, when you get to Revelation... Now you can go back and say Daniel and Ezekiel and others. So, so you, you can look back and understand what they said, but you, you wouldn't go forward and say Daniel understood what, you know, what, what whoever you know, it was that, uh, that, that said. But that's a great question. In fact, next week we're going to be looking at prophecy in specific, uh, specifically, and uh, we'll get into to some of that. But progressive revelation is a universal is a universal principle. Now, prophecy is a little bit different in the sense that that um, there's there there are things that are mysteries that aren't revealed until you get to the you know to the to the New Testament. So that's good. Questions? All right. Let's look at um, four. You're going to use a small piece uh, as an illustration or an example. Make sure you explain that you're using it as an illustration or an example. This is a legitimate use of narrative. See Romans 15, 4, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. What happened to Israel is for our example. Hebrews 11, the faith, fathers of faith chapter. 1 Peter 3. It's okay to take application from people and events in narrative as long as we make clear that the purpose of the narrative, what that is, and that we're looking at the text as an illustration or, or an example. For instance, Genesis 39. Joseph resisting Potiphar's wife is an excellent example of how to flee moral temptation, a, a truth clearly taught both in the Old and New Testament. Ecclesiastes 7 and 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Yet the story of Joseph was not written to teach us about moral temptation. The many episodes in Joseph's life show us how God preserved a nation of Israel through Joseph. A, a person may use Joseph's flight from Potiphar's wife as an illustration, though, of fleeing moral temptation. But they should point out that it's an illustration and not the primary intent of the, of the passage. So... Here's just a way to simplify it in, in my mind. The main character in the Bible is God. So that's the first thing that you're going to look. What is this teaching me about God? Why did God put this story in the Bible? What does He want me to learn about Him? But the second question I'm going to ask is what can I learn about man, mankind? Because there's no temptation taking you but such which is common unto man. And we're the same. We're depraved. Depravity may come out in different ways. And so you can learn about mankind. You can learn about 
about the evils of mankind from these stories. And then the third question that you always ask is, what does this teach me about redemption? Because that's the whole purpose of the Bible. So you just simply ask those three questions when you come to a narrative passage. What does this teach me about God? Why is this here? Where is this? Just doing that alone will will orient you and remind you that, that this is connected to something bigger than just this little story that I'm reading right here. So why is this in here? What is this teaching me about God? And then once you do that, okay, what can I learn about mankind here? Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a liar. That, that'll be bad. Consequences are, are going to come. You can use that as an illustration. It's perfectly legitimate to do that. Um, human beings are liars. And then what does this teach me about redemption? Um, Steve used the example of, of how, how God, by His sheer grace, sealed Noah in the ark. It's an illustration of God's grace. And you can say that and use it as an illustration. Look at B. In Job 25, 4 through 6, we read... How then can man be just with God, or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that that maggot, and the son of man, that worm? Does this text teach that we are maggots and worms, or are we worth as much as maggots and worms? Does this teach that no one can be just before God? Is the Son of Man here Jesus? Who is speaking? Why? What's the theme of Job? How does this passage fit into the theme? Would it be okay to take this passage and use it to teach worm theology? Well, if you go to Job 25, it's, it's Bildad who's speaking. Not Job, and it's one of the many speeches of Job's three friends. It's one of the last ones, or the last one. And that's going to inform you about you know, the context here. So you might use that as an illustration, but just connect it to the, to the, to the whole. Uh, look at B, uh, teaching a larger section of narrative. All right, so we looked at small, now look at big. Uh, somebody may decide to use a large section of, of narrative, and if this is the case, you should follow these guidelines. Determine the theme or intent of your passage as a whole. What is the theme and the intent of the story of Joseph or the book of Job? Your smaller section must support the theme. Your interpretation of what the author meant to teach must be part and must fit into the theme of the book or the, or the section. Um, and that's very important. I'll illustrate that or try to illustrate that this morning from Romans, even though it's an epistle, not narrative, but same principle. You wouldn't believe how many, ever, how many people will look at the book of Romans and they'll zero in, like I mentioned this morning, chapter 14 and 15 is all about unity. So that's why Paul wrote Romans, to bring, to bring unity. That's the only reason, and everything is, is to lead us up to that. Or they'll read about the, the union that we have with Christ, and that's the heart of, of the book. They'll, they'll take one part of it, 
And say that is, is really the main point, and so then they'll subordinate all the other things to it and allow that to, to kind of cast its shadow over the rest of the, of the book of Romans. So yet you have to understand it all. Look, look at two, or ask yourself, can I teach the story in summary fashion and deliver a clear and practical message? I mean, stories are strong communicating tools. So uh, don't feel that you can't make an impact on people by, by just telling the story well. I mean, these are narratives. These are stories. They're written to, to, to lead you up to a crisis moment, for you to feel that tension. It's like in that story of, of Noah and his sons. And then the, it's, it's released in, in some way. Just telling that story is, is powerful. Remember, two people can tell the same story, and one person can make it boring, and the other very interesting. But don't use the authority of Scripture or sound hermeneutics to be boring. Don't do that. Number three. If the section you're studying teaches a specific truth, like redemption, Exodus 4 through 13, you might want to summarize the story and point out the main point is God's redemption for Israel from Egypt, and then using cross-references, explain in more detail what the Bible says about the doctrine of redemption and its importance for the Christian using your text as the focal point. In this way, you teach the theme, the story, and then you accentuate the main doctrine associated with the, with the main point of the of the text, topically ex expositional. Four, whenever you're teaching a larger section, attempt to communicate the main thought. Don't get caught up in the mountains of details. Again, this is I'm taking a large portion. You're not going to be able to teach ten chapters of Genesis or whatever it is. So communicate the main thought, which means you have to know it. And don't get wrapped up in all of the details. Only focus on the details which... Uh, which point to the main theme or the, or the main thought. There'll be many good points that you're not going to be able to mention. Just mention those which support the main theme and the author's trying to communicate. One of the hardest things for new teachers to do is to force themselves not to try and teach everything that they've discovered in their study. It's true. Can you remember when I first came to Christ? And if I got somebody to hold still long enough for me to share Jesus, I told them everything that I knew. And I would talk until they would get rude and walk away. Um, you study way more than, than you teach. You should. Uh, Dr. Luke Kaufman, who was my homiletics professor, used to say there's, that there's way more film on the editing floor than what makes in the movie. Think of the hours and hours and hours of film that they shoot, and then it's all whittled down to an hour and 45 minutes or two hours or, or whatever it is. And that editing can make a good movie or a really bad movie, can it? How you do that. And so there is some skill to sermonizing and to teaching, and, and yet the, the foundation is is what Scripture says. So it's really hard to do that. You want to tell everybody everything that you know. Remember, it's better to clearly explain one to four truths, show the application, discuss the, impl uh, the implementation, than to do an unclear job of explaining many points. 
and not getting into the application and, in, and the implementation. I mean, frankly, one of the hardest things I had to do with the introduction to Romans this morning is you, you don't have a text in front of you where you can say, look at verse 1 through verse 7. Look at the text, look at the text. And, and we know where we're going, and we know here it starts, and we know here it ends, and we know pastor's winding down because he's at verse 6 and verse 7 where we're getting out of here. But you don't have that when you're introducing the book. You're telling about the whole book. Well, that's interesting for a period of time. There's a lot of information that you have to understand. And I've got 50 minutes in order to communicate that to you. And you're tuning in and, and, and out, and you're thinking about lunch, and there's a, you know, there's, there's a baby crying or something behind you, or you, you, know, you zone out. And you've been in a sermon, or, 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 or you've been listening to somebody teach, and they pull up their outline, and they say, today I'm going to show you 15 things about whatever it is. And you're going, oh boy. And it's all good till you get to about number four or five. And then you're going, wow, it's very, very hard to pay attention to all of that information that's, um, that's there. Tell yourself it is impossible to teach everything that can be taught when studying any text, especially a large one, and that things must be left out. You have to leave it out. Even if you were able for, to, to get people to hold still, to tell them everything that you knew about that passage, there would still be millions and millions of things about that passage that you don't know that you weren't able to tell them. So let's look at some summary principles and I'll let you go. Teaching a small section out of a large teacher text in relation to the theme of the story. Don't read the New Testament into the Old. Show how your passage fits into the theme of the whole book or section. And use a narrative story as an example or illustration. If you do that, make sure that you point out that you're doing that. Teaching a large section of narrative. Determine the theme. Know that. Can you... Teach the story in summary fashion and still be clear and practical. You might want to use your text as a focal point for communicating a doctrinal truth from a theme. Make sure you relay the main thought of the whole narrative and select one truth which teaches and supports the main thought. And then the homework is just an example where you can practice that in Genesis 22, which is the sacrifice of, of Abraham and Isaac. And I did all that homework, and I was going to walk through it with you tonight, but it's ten minutes after six. And I don't want to be that guy that has 15 things for you to listen to, so I'll take my own counsel and end right now. Closing thoughts? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for all of the tools that you've given us. Thank you most of all for the Word of God reveals you reveal yourself in it you teach us who we are what we need to become what we're not and most importantly lord you you teach us the redemption that you provided through your son jesus christ um, help us to prepare even as we begin to see him in full display in the book of romans next week use us this week as we share the gospel with our families and coworkers and people we run into, help us to live lives of 
of integrity and not hypocrisy. Um, preserve us from the evil one, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.